1: Hello, and welcome to Philosophy for Our Times, bringing you the world's leading thinkers on today's biggest ideas. Many think language makes us uniquely human. Are humans no different in principle from other animals and plants? Or is language profoundly different from all other forms of communication and the enabler of consciousness itself? Joining us to debate the uniqueness of human language, our best-selling author of The Genius of Birds, Jennifer Ackerman, Philosopher and cultural critic Ray Tallis, and author of a field guide to reality and Zen, Joanna Cavenna. If you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to like and subscribe on your platform of choice, and visit ii.tv for hundreds more podcasts, videos, and articles from the world's leading thinkers. I'll now hand you over to our host for this debate, Hilary Lawson.
0: So welcome to language, animals and us. Many think language makes us uniquely human, yet bees communicate precisely how to reach a source of pollen from the hive, birds warn of a predator, dogs call to each other with their barks and understand our verbal commands, and new studies show that baboons' grunts align with human speech patterns, and even plants send signals to each other through their roots. Is human language just one type of communication, and have we wildly overestimated its importance? Are humans no different in principle from other animals and plants? Or is language profoundly different from all other forms of communication and the enabler of consciousness itself? With me to debate this fundamental topic, we have a great panel, all of whom have shown rather exceptional linguistic skills themselves. Joe Cavanna is an award-winning and acclaimed novelist whose books address big social and philosophical themes, and amongst her novels, Inglorious, A Field Guide to Reality, and her latest book, Zed. Ray Talis had an impressive career in medicine and neuroscience before he turned to philosophical writing. His books address what is special about being human, central, of course, to today's debate, and include Aping Mankind and The Knowing Animal. And Jennifer Ackman is a best-selling author who's written about science and nature for 30 years. Her acclaimed book, The Genius of Birds, was picked as one of their top books of the year by The Wall Street Journal, The Spectator, and The Sunday Times, and published in 20 languages. Her most recent book, Birdway, continues the exploration of the complexity and sophistication of avian life. I'm going to give each of the panel just three minutes to address the question. Is human language special or just one of many forms of communication? So let's begin, first of all, with you, Jo.
2: Thanks, Hilary. So as you know, the question is immensely paradoxical. Um, We're trying to talk about a system um, within the system itself, so we can't really get an objective view of it. Um, language, human language is completely intrinsic to us. We're inducted into it from birth. And it's sort of something that's preceded us by centuries, even millennia, but then it becomes fundamental to our sense of self and our consciousness co-evolves with our acquisition of language. And so in this debate, we're, we're attempting both to define human language and compare it, which is wonderfully complex and paradoxical. And I think for lots of writers, this question of language, language isn't really special, it's very um, complex and Baroque, and if you're James Joyce you find it horrendous really. He said writing in English was the most ingenious torture ever devised for sins committed in previous lives, and he felt very bound by these historical associations of language. Borges said that language is a system of signs which presupposes a shared past, and if you're resistant to that past that can be very much a struggle to try to find your way in that. Caliban in Shakespeare, of course, sounds the quintessential complaint. Um, He says the red plague rid you for learning me your language, for colonizing me. So there are all these echoes and language is a fossilized poetry. um, And that phrase is from Owen Barfield. And what I mean by that is there are so many echoes and associations, so many ambiguities, even in this question we have just really quickly to define the terms or attempt the most brief and minute definition. Language comes from the Latin for tongue, lingua. So it's a kind of synecdoche from the start. And the word special, well, we're talking about Latin again, species. Um, but we understand it in the medieval sense as dear or favoured. Um, form is from the Latin figure or shape. And communication, again, communicare to share. So another way of phrasing your question would be: If we use all these old associations, is the tongue dear, or is it just? one among many shapes of sharing, which we'd all find a really peculiar question, I think, to be debating. So, you know, there's this big question, ambiguity gap with language. And in terms of how um, we're working language and how other communicators are working, there's this really interesting question, which I hope we'll discuss um, about the gap that exists between the experience of the individual and what they convey. And again, you know, this, this sense, are we understood? You know, do we convey what we want to convey in language? And I don't know if a cetacean creating an amazing sonar picture um, of what it possibly perceives and conveying that by underwater broadband, I don't know if that cetacean feels like Beckett at the end that they've sort of failed and they've got to try harder next time. And I can't enter the mind of the cetacean, but in a sense, I can't enter the mind of other humans as well. I'm really interested in cetaceans, interested in the moving story of of Nim Chimpsky, Um, The chimpanzee who there was a sort of Turing test experiment, whether he could acquire language and he acquired all sorts of words um, and was apparently able to ask for a spliff. But again, we don't know if he really wanted a spliff or if he associated (laughs) that with something else. So finally, you know, I think there's enormous amounts to address. And just really quickly, I'm going to really, really quickly answer your question. Yes. Yes. Human language is special to humans, vexing and powerful and wonderful and difficult. And yes, it's just one of many forms of communication.
3: Thank you, Joe. Ray? Well, I want to make three points. Firstly, that human language is fundamentally different from any animal communication system. Secondly, that that difference is rooted in something even more fundamental. Our status as what I called in a book published many years ago as explicit animals. And thirdly, there is an abundant evidence for the uniqueness of human language and the consciousness in which it is rooted in their countless consequences evident in every aspect of daily life. So let me list some differences between human discourse and anything that bees dance, birds sing, dogs bark or chimps grunt. Human language has a syntax, parts of speech sentence structure. This underpins our famous capacity for making infinite use of our finite means, combining and recombining elements. The signs of which human language is composed Are arbitrary in a profound sense of being causally and in other respects disconnected from the physical environment and often indeed the situation of the speaker. That's why we can talk of things that are absent or non-existent, enjoy mental time travel, explicitly entertain and indeed deny possibilities in discourse. We also distinguish questions, demands and assertions. And finally there is a linguistic or meta-linguistic self-consciousness in which we may use language to refer to language, a capacity whose most remarkable, if recent expression, is writing, the encoding, storage, and recording of utterances. That's the first point. The second point is that these features of language, rich, complex, and profound in themselves, are manifestations of something unique about our humanity, our being creatures who make things explicit to ourselves and to each other. And I hope we're going to talk about things such as pointing and so on. But one aspect of this, is what Tomasello and others have called joint, shared or collective intentionality. And intentionality is a property of consciousness in virtue of which it is about something, about something that we share in a community of minds and a common world woven out of a trillion cognitive handshakes. And so to my third point, it might be argued that we are privy to the richness of our own language because we experience it from within, whereas we're not privy to the richness of that of animals. How, you might ask, would a dog report on human chatter? Dismiss it as noise, probably. We can, however, be confident of the uniqueness of human language when we contemplate its fruits, the wall-to-wall landscape of artifacts, the built environment, shared expertise, institutions, and other ways of structuring collective activity, laws and rules that are consulted and argued over as well as follow, a common mythical and historical past and future and also by the rapidity of our cultural evolution and the advance of our scientific understanding of the world. We are, after all, the only bit of nature that puts nature in inverted commas. But to preempt misunderstanding, I'm not saying that as a result of this we are top animals, only that we are different in a different way, and one of the most profound of those differences lies in our language.
4: Human language certainly is special. I don't argue that animals or plants, for that matter, have language as we define it in human terms. You know, we don't have evidence for symbolic communication in other species that's as rich and multifunctional as our language. And as uh, both Ray and Joe have pointed out, human language has a structure and an Uh, open-endedness. It's an expressive power that's unlike communication in any other species as far as we know. But to my mind, there may be a vast unexplored universe in that phrase as far as we know. The field of animal cognition, understanding the minds of other animals, how they think and communicate is really still in its infancy. And we have a very long way to go before we can say that we fully understand how dolphins communicate or whales or elephants or cephalopods or even birds. Moreover, even if human language is in its entirety unique, certain aspects of it, I don't think are. I'm gonna give just one example, one bird species out of 10,000, the New Holland honey eater of Australia, which is a bird that's toppling old ideas about how much information a bird can convey in its calls. So when a honey eater spots a threat like a hawk, it makes an alarm call that's packed with information about the nature of the predator and what it's doing. And it really makes you wonder what we're missing, in other bird calls and songs. So scientists are finding also um, language-like qualities such as this in some bird vocalizations, the key linguistic features such as functional referentiality, the ability to refer to a specific object or event in the environment, and compositional syntax in a very simple form, which is the set of rules for arranging and combining sounds and words to create meaningful phrases and sentences. And you know, there are other parallels between human speech and bird song. Uh, We've come to understand that birds learn their songs the way that we learn language through vocal learning. And the similarities are remarkable from the process of listening, imitating and practicing right down to the brain pathways involved and the actions of specific genes in those pathways. And there are other ways that, that communication among birds may mirror our own use of language, for instance, and in its powerful capacity to deceive and manipulate. And we share these features not because they evolved in a shared common ancestor 300 million years ago, but because of convergent evolution. Birds and humans converged on strategies and similar neuronal pathways and genes because these are good and effective mechanisms for learning sophisticated communication. So in short, birds, uh, to name just one class of animals, uh, may have forms of communication that hold more meaning and subtle language-like qualities than we ever imagined. And the ways that we interpret and categorize them may actually bear little resemblance to how these animals actually hear and use them. So the question that interests me is not so much, are we humans alone in possessing language, but rather do other animals and perhaps even plants have systems of communication that are highly sophisticated with complex characteristics that we don't know how to measure yet. We don't have a Rosetta Stone for them, and that are perhaps at least at the moment beyond our understanding.
0: Thank you, Jennifer, and thank, thank all of you for such clear positions that you've laid out. So let's, let's begin by looking at language itself before we explore the issue of the relationship with uh, animals and just get, try to get clear. I think we're all agreed, or you're all agreed, that uh, human language is immensely powerful as a tool of communication, and you know, especially in some ways in, in its uh, abilities to do that. But is it, is it more than a tool for communication? Is it also the basis of consciousness or experience itself?
3: Right. Well, I wouldn't describe it as the basis of consciousness. It seems to be language and the ability to use language must be downstream of being conscious. The intentionality or the aboutness that's built into consciousness, the intentionality of language is derived from that basic intentionality of, of, of consciousness. So I, 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 I certainly wouldn't think of language, as it were, as the basis of You were making a, a, a
0: case that language was, was unique and special. What is it then
3: that is unique and special about it? I mean, there are many things, but uh, I mentioned in passing what's called shared intentionality. This is associated with many ethologists, particularly Thomas Sellill and so on. But the fact that we actually share our consciousness in an explicit way and we consciously face a shared public world. And you see this in pre-linguistic children. I mean, I've written a book on pointing, and one of the things that pointing is is, is interesting is that children from the ages of nine, ten months onwards have declarative pointing, where they actually want to, as it were, share an experience with another individual. That kind of pre-linguistic sharing of experience, it seems to me, is one of the um, building stones, or the the ground floor, if you like, of the kind Mm -hmm. of shared consciousness that ultimately leads to the shared world that is made of a million trillative cognitive handshakes. What is special about that shared uh, space?
0: I mean, after all, a flock of sheep. Uh, being attacked by a fox, respond as a, in a sort of shared way, don't they? They, they, they don't do it all individually. They, they clearly move in a group.
3: In what sense is that different? And basically, the sheep are, as it were, individually, but responding, as it were, collectively, to a specific near and present danger. I mean, one of the joys of seeing a nine-month-old or 10-month-old child or 11-month-old starting to point is that they point at all sorts of things which are not relevant to anything other than being with somebody else. It is that fundamental desire to be with others uh, that, as it were, bursts open the solipsis bubble and makes individual humans collectively and explicitly and consciously belong to a shared world. And that's the kind of soil out of which the use of language grows.
2: It
0: looks as if that's the key bit of the point that you're making there is that the sheep are just behaving while humans are experiencing. Is that your, is that a distinction you're trying to make there?
3: I wouldn't find the distinction there. I'd say it's a distinction between behaving and experiencing on the one hand and articulating on the other. And much articulation is for its own sake.
0: Thank you, Ray. So, Joe, what, what do you think language is conveying? I mean, what, what, is, what is it really doing?
2: So, again, I mean, we can't have a control on this experiment. We can't clone ourselves at birth and then induct one version of ourselves into the system of language and then not induct the other and, you know, keep all the other variables the same. So we don't don't know empirically, there's no scientific experiment we can do. But enable, I mean, that, that word, that 15th century definition of it as make fit with a later kind of meaning sort of make able to. And I think that ambiguity again is really interesting because our consciousness, you know, it is, I think, it absolutely, as we experience it, comes into being through language. Also, though, it's kind of fitted into language. And again, there's that sort of tension, you know, even in that definition, you know, we, we feel all the time that there's something else, words are not quite enough. Um, as Stevenson said, there's more in 15 minutes of consciousness than all of Shakespeare can express. So I, I agree with a lot of what Ray's saying. And I also think there's a kind of, a sort of intangibility to conscious experience that language can't ever quite reach. And that's the subject of enormous amounts of slightly angst-ridden writing by writers I love, including people like Beckett, who almost gets to the point where he thinks silence might be the most dignified escape out of this, or at least language that's so pared down, it's almost in touch with silence. Everything becomes unnameable, no name. And that's sort of very, and again, a kind of mystical tradition as well, where silence becomes very powerful. Or a symbolist tradition where you're trying to escape from some of the shackles of language and the way they they do make consciousness fit that feeling that you're being in some way trammelled so i think it's again i'm going to argue for a sort of position of ambiguity because there are so many unknowns in what we're discussing i think
0: so do you think i mean one of the characteristics of philosophy in the 20th century was the so-called linguistic term of putting language at the center and um, Figures like Wittgenstein and some might argue later post-structuralists like Derrida sometimes make it look as if there's nothing outside of language. You know, there is only the text. We can only think in language. There is nothing other than that. Are you saying that they're wrong? that's not They've got, they've got that wrong.
2: Yeah, I think the the, the the sort of experiment to have the, all that sort of utopian notion, and, and all writers are kind of utopians in that respect, you're questing for a way that you might precisely express what you're trying to express. And that's the sort of dream of, of you know, parts of Wittgenstein, as you know. And But I think with Derrida, I mean, with Difference, actually, Derrida gets into that whole Caesarian battle with language, really, with these very ungainly terms, you know, the signifier and the signified. And Lacan makes that kind of, algebraic formula where there's a line between them. And the line is really where subjectivity and everything interesting is. And that's what, as I understand, you know, the sort of ambiguity and differences where you've got that meaning again of differ and defer, but there's a sort of suspended meaning, which is almost where subjectivity might reside between, you know, the the kind of the thing that you're trying to describe and the way you end up conveying it. So I think there there is a complexity in that tradition, a kind of attempt to deal with it. And as you know, of course, Wittgenstein you know changes his position as well.
0: But we do when we think, we think in language, don't we? We we, we can't really think without language, and therefore, it, it, is language the very structure of thought?
2: It's so interesting, isn't it? So there's that. Uh, the, speaking of Wittgenstein, you know, there's the very famous phrase which I know Ray also cites in his excellent recent book seeing ourselves and the the thing if a lion could speak we wouldn't understand him that's an interesting phrase because if the lion spoke his consciousness his true experience of the world then yes i don't think we'd fathom it because it would be so different from ours a bit like if a tree spoke their true experience of existing through great sways of time and existing in this very sort of slow moving way with these slow moving you know electrical sort of um you know forms of communication i think that would be really unfathomable but, but also, there's a possibility the lion would get inducted into the language and would only be able to express certain things. So he might say, you know, me lion or whether it's ice or, you know, want more meat. And, you know, we'd sort of in some way um, feel that, you know, he was a bit kind of conventional and not very interesting because he's, he'd be in some way sort of restricted by the language that was available because in our language, there is no you know, no means to express the consciousness of a lion. So, you know, if we put him on a kind of Goethe-Institute equivalent, I think he might come out with that. So (laughs) I think, you know, there's a sort of, you know, a further caveat, I think, in the Wittgenstein caveat, possibly. Uh, Jennifer, your thoughts on this? I
4: I do think that language enables consciousness, but I, I don't think it's necessarily required for it. And it obviously depends on how you define consciousness, and, and I think of it as, a, um, as an ongoing awareness of personal experience, I guess. And its purpose is really to, to enable the survival, our survival, the survival of any animal as it moves about in the face of a, of a changing environment. You know, I don't think it's a binary thing. I don't think you either have it or you don't. I think there are are gradations in different kinds of consciousness, takes a a variety of forms. And a lot of them, as Joe and Ray have both said, have differ substantially from human subjective experience. So I I want to add two things here. First, something personal. My younger sister, Becky, was born with severe microcephaly, and she had a head and brain that was far smaller than normal, and she had really profound mental disabilities. She had no language of any kind ever, no speech, no ability to comprehend words. But did she have consciousness? I think absolutely. Um, She had a, a sense of self and how she moved through the world. She recognized family members. She enjoyed music. So I don't believe that consciousness depends on language, no, I think she had thinking, um, but no language. And I do think that not all of us think in words, you know, I I think about the animal expert, Temple Grandin talking about how she thinks in pictures. And the the other point I wanted to address was was Ray's point of shared intentions. And I just wanna give an example from the bird world that involves um, shared communication. And it's um, it, it's an example um, of a bird, tropical bird called the greater Ani. And this bird is a collective, uh, cooperative breeder. Up to a dozen adults, birds will collectively raise their young. And these are not uh, family members. They're unrelated birds, but they work together to build a nest, um, warm their eggs, uh, feed the young and raise them until they fledge. Now, the question in is how do they coordinate all of these activities? And the way that scientists think that they do it is through (laughs) the way that any sports team would um, communicate, which is through a huddle. These birds, um, several times a day, collect in a huddle. Um, They put their bills at the center and they start to chorus and they begin to chorus in unison. And the scientists think that this is the way they're making decisions. Where do we build a nest? Who's ready to lay eggs? So there's some kind of very shared intention of raising young and a form of communication we have not yet begun to understand. But, um, but it suggests to me a, a very, very much a, a, um, a meeting of minds, if you will, in a, in a form of shared communication.
0: Thank you. So, Ray, uh, shared intentionality by the looks of things there, isn't there? Do you think that there is a consciousness that is non-linguistic
3: Yeah, I mean, taking the second question first, I'm totally persuaded by what Jennifer has said about her sister. I certainly believe there is consciousness without language, and I think consciousness basically is the ultimate underpinning of any language at all, and most obviously human language. But I was very interested with Jennifer's example of the huddle. I mean, one can obviously get extraordinarily complex cooperative activity in uh, insects, for example, bees who dance, and one has to ask the question, do they manage this together, producing these wonderful architectural structures, beehives, and so on, with division of labor, and so on and so forth? Do they do this through cooperating, in a way of articulating their situation and their needs in the way that we do? And obviously, in the, in the example of bees, that's clearly not the case. Um, I'm not too sure with Jennifer's example, and clearly she knows much more about the idea. I'm a bit interested further observation, whether these, as it were, standardized huddles that occur from time to time are anything other than, if you like, mechanisms of thought, mechanisms of cooperation in the way that what happens in a beehive is a mechanism of cooperation. What's striking about human beings is that they share intelligence, consciousness, and so on and so forth with other human beings, fully aware that those human beings are in a sense equal to, or at least in some sense, very like themselves. So when a 11-month-old child points out something, doggy, you know, to uh, its parent. it's basically, it's it's sharing consciousness, in this case, for its own sake, Um, although it's quite useful for learning language. So I wonder whether, Jennifer, on the spectrum between, say, human beings cooperating with plans and architecture and so on and so forth, and browse over the contract, all that sort of thing that we do when we're building something, at one end, and bees building a hive on the other, where do these wonderful birds you've described sit along that spectrum?
4: It's an excellent question. I mean, I do think there's a continuum. And, and I, I think what I would argue is that we don't know. Joe, you said it beautifully. We're not um, really capable of entering the, the minds, the consciousness, the communication of other creatures. We're not even capable of doing that amongst our own species. And so I don't know where anis fall on, that, on the spectrum. I think it's somewhere, yes, yeah, somewhere in between bees and humans, although I think you know bees have a lot more going on than, than we give them credit for too. So it, it's an interesting question, but I think we just, we're just beginning to you know, to nibble at the edges of it.
0: Let, let's use that beginning of that conversation to, to, to move on to sort of second theme here. What, what do we think is going on in the case of animals? Uh, do we think that animal studies have demonstrated that we are not unique and that animals have their own form of language? Is that that what you're saying, Jennifer?
4: I am not saying that humans are not unique. (laughs) Uh, What I'm interested in is the, um, I think we have underestimated the complexity of communication in other species and that we're, you know, we're beginning to understand what we don't Understand in, in and I used the example of the the, the New Holland honey eater, which um, has been uh, uh, studied in great detail with um, you know meticulous studies, and it's understood now that that this call that this bird makes in the presence of a predator is very specific, and th- this call has up to ninety six elements in it. So this is one species uh, with. Many, many elements to its call, some of which we're beginning to tease apart. But we really don't know um, what the full range of complexity is and, and what the full range of information that it's conveying and what other birds are hearing and what they're understanding from it.
0: But is your understanding from that that they are using, in a way, their own formal language? We might not understand what it is but they are using their own form of language because it certainly sounds as if that's what you're describing.
4: Uh, yes, I think so. I mean, I think using the term language is loaded. Um, I think they're using a communication system that's, that's highly complex and, and has language-like elements. The uh, Japanese tit, for example, is one bird that, that has a kind of syntax that um, the order of its notes makes a difference, you change the order of the notes, and the meaning of the call changes. So it's a, a, it's a very, you know, simple form of syntax, but it exists. And, um, and there, you know, again, there have really only been a handful of species studied. And um, so I'm just, I'm sort of set back on my heels by the possibility that there's just much more complexity going on than, than we imagine
2: was the great dream, wasn't it, of the ancients to understand the language mm. of particularly birds. I mean, that was the, you know, the ornithomancy sort of dream that somehow that birds were more in touch with, you know, the angelic realm and with the secrets of the universe. And so mm-hmm. trying to intuit and, you know, all these kind of figures like Solomon, who's seen as very wise because he could speak to the birds. And, you know, the figurehead of Jason's ship the Argo, which is built you know, from sacred woods, and you could speak the language of birds. And there's that whole kind of esoteric tradition where actually the birds have got the greatest perception of what's going on, Odin's ravens that tell him what's going on with the mortals. I mean, that's a sort of very interesting kind of tradition that goes through and through, it appears in 12th century Persia with the, um, you know, the conference of the birds. I mean, there's it's really, I wonder if that's because you said, Jennifer, in your book about bird brains, and I thought it's very, it's interesting that that tradition's kind of lapsed now. Mm-hmm. Now we think of, you know, birds as, as bird brained, as you say.
3: It's, it's quite interesting, isn't it? Because in a way, the debate is between what Thomas Sudendorf calls the romantics and the killjoys. So the romantics ascribe to animals all sorts of capacities and forms of consciousness that the killjoys deny. The killjoys want to say it's all mechanism. I suspect I'm slightly killjoyish, as you've probably spotted, But it does seem to be, uh, there is the Lloyd Morgan canon, which said you should not ascribe to animal behavior, more complex capabilities and so on, than you have other evidence for. Mm -hmm. So when it comes to other evidence, in human beings, there's massive other evidence. We have rapid cultural evolution. But if you compare, say, ourselves with chimpanzees, what was the height of technological achievement of a chimpanzee several million years ago? Basically, to break a, a, a nut with a stone. What's the height of a technological achievement of a chimpanzee now to break a nut with a stone? In the meantime, we've moved on for good or ill to producing nuclear power stations, et cetera, et cetera. So you could see in terms of by their fruits, you shall know them. There is some really fundamental difference in human communication, which is expressed in our extraordinary capacity for collective activity, cultural evolution, and so on and so forth. So if there were other independent evidence of, as it were, the more elaborate cognitive structures behind other animals' communication, then that will be interesting. And I'm completely with you when you say, we really don't know, mm-hmm. and you're neither a killjoy nor a romantic. But it does seem to me that if one's going to become romantic about it, one needs to find other evidence that animal communication has brought about other ways of working together of the kind that we see in, in human beings, which are rapidly evolving.
2: It feels like though in, in Douglas Adams, I often think of Douglas Adams because he's so um, comical, philosophical, but uh, you know, he had that point that, you know, the dolphins were trying to warn the humans that the Vogons were about to destroy the planet and the humans just thought that the dolphins just liked jumping through hoops for fish and they completely misunderstood all this urgent warning. So, I mean, it, you know, again, it, it, it may be that there's a profundity that we can't access yet. Yeah, yeah.
0: Ray, what would would count as evidence for you? The example that Jennifer gave uh, of the 96 different calls with different uh, consequences seems to be, in your initial description, seems to have that shared uh, experience and the specificity, which would seem to indicate that it is a form of what we are doing with language.
3: What, What additional evidence would you want one, one, being a killjoy, one can see it as mechanistic and rather a communication between one quasi-self and another. It is a mechanism. I mean, if you go back to bees, you think of their extraordinary communication regarding you know, the, the location of pollen and so on and so forth. And not only that, the location of where pollen was yesterday and so on. The more you learn about the bees, the more astonishing they are. But I don't think any of us would be inclined to ascribe to bees the kind of higher order consciousness that informs our absolute everyday life in in, in human beings. I don't think we're inclined to ascribe to them. And one of the reasons for that is, you know, they were building these amazing structures called hives, whenever it was, millions and millions of years ago. They're still building those amazing structures called hives, but they haven't made any sort of progress. I mean, that's a bit churlish, I know. But so what is happening in humanity, which is extraordinary rapid cultural evolution, and the way we are co-present to each other, the way we've, as it were, our our own consciousness is hugely influenced by our consciousness of the consciousness of others. Our very sense of who we are is influenced by our sense of what others think we are.
2: I'm Just wondering, as you were talking, what about those, I mean, there are very few examples of consciousness without language. So they they often involve appalling abuse and so the cases are very tragic and and i was thinking of genie that that famous example of a, a girl who was brought up by an abusive father who um and she she had amazing she wasn't she wasn't allowed language he barked at her like a dog and he didn't teach her language but she had extraordinary nonverbal communication mm-hmm. and almost kind of a telepathy if she was passing someone and she'd pass a little boy who had a fire engine a toy fire engine and no words would be exchanged and suddenly he'd turn and give her his fire engine by a means you know a highly sort of sophisticated non-verbal communication and also i mean the the much debated controversial example of casper hauser and there are so many i mean no one knows really what happened with that but there are reports that again he ostensibly didn't have language um, introduced as a child but he had this incredible charisma and charm and almost a kind of alchemical ability to beguile by this sort of non-verbal means so I mean, these examples, they're they're interesting in terms of what happens when language isn't presented into
3: consciousness. I'm I'm totally with you. I'm with Jennifer on this. It seems to me that one can have very complex and profound consciousness as a human being within a society that's dominated by language. But uh, I'm thinking more of, say, the bees or whatever, who have communication systems, but not that kind of self-consciousness and apparently uh, consciousness of other bees, that would translate into the kind of cultural evolution uh, that we see in humans. What evidence
0: would enable you to conclude that this is going on in animals? I mean, you could interpret language between humans in a similar behavioral way, just be a very complex form of behavior. And if you, if you don't think that there's language is necessarily the basis of consciousness and that there's some other form of consciousness, what, what, what evidence would you want to have to say, in the case of, an, uh, uh, of animals, that they're, they're not using something that is akin to what we understand
3: to be language? I'm not saying animals don't have communication systems. I'm just saying that there's something about human language is utterly unique. Because look how quickly we have parted company from our nearest primate kin. Now, I gave the example of technological development in chimps and technological development in human beings. And... Really, there's something totally different going on, and that is driven by all those trillion cognitive handshakes mediated by language.
0: We, we can move on to our, our last uh, theme, which is, is there, uh, in terms of the way we think about animals in the future, uh, will we be able to make more sense of animal language, or is there something fundamentally problematic about our being able to do so? Jennifer, do you, do you think there's something fundamentally impossible about understanding communication with animals or might we one day just crack it and be able to talk to them?
4: I think we have a, a, a long way to go. And I, I don't know that we're, we're ever going to get there. I mean, I, I, I think that um, we are beginning to understand that we have to take the point of view of the animal as insofar as much as we can. And I think, for instance, about um, the new perspectives that we have on, I'm gonna to resort to birds again here, but on how birds see color. They see color in a completely different way than we do. We, did, we thought that they saw color the way that we did, and we made all of our assumptions about mating patterns and courtship based on our perception of color. It turns out that they see with ultraviolet light baked into all the colors that they see, so it's a whole different dimension of color. It's true for sound too. So birds experience sound in a completely different way than we do. And we're beginning to understand that. We're beginning to understand how to listen in a different way, how to see in a different way, how to test, for instance, ultraviolet light um, differences in in how birds see color and to to parse the kinds of, of differences in how birds perceive sound. So um, we're, we've come a long way, I think we've, we've just got a, a very long way to go. And I, I want to just bring up something here to address Ray's point about um, culture. And again, this is, is all about a, a, a huge scale, a range of kinds of, of um, sophistication. But, there are examples of culture in the bird world um, there. The, the, the New Caledonian Crow has, um, makes and uses its own sophisticated tools. And it um, transmits tool design, has different styles of tool making in different parts of the island. And it transmits tool design from one generation to the next. And the birds get better at making their tools. Um, the tools are more, more sophisticated over time. And so the, the, you know the faithful transmission of tool design over generations, that's a, a very good definition of culture. So it's actually a, a, um, an aside from the, um, the language issue, but I think there are um, again, you know, like the um, compositional syntax. these are very um, simple forms of culture, simple forms of, of syntax, but but they do exist, and we, you know our goal our our mission is to, to explore these other forms of communicating and knowing. Joe, do you have a
0: view about this?
2: Well, I think, so I think the subjective experience, which for most, you know, people is mediated through language will be the kind of stumbling block to a full comprehension because we're always going to sort of interpret things through human language metaphors. Um, so I mean, of course, there's the essay by Thomas Nagel, What's It Like to Be a Bat? And then Mm. there's Peter Hacker's quite indignant response, you know, where he says, well, what's it like to be Peter Hacker? So this kind of um, fundamental impossibility of, of, you know, removing yourself from the subjective reality that you're existing in. And, I mean, there's some wonderful writing on tree experience, if that's, uh, you know, obviously that's a metaphorical term. There's, uh, you know, this idea that trees are sort of communicating and the phrase goes sort of distress and alarm and that they um, nurture kind of fallen trees, you know, stumps that have died and keep sort of pumping nutrients into them. And there are metaphors in use, like they're kind of nurturing an old matriarch and, you know, allusions to elephants. And, and this writing's really fascinating um, and is analysing, you know, chemicals and ways in which trees communicate through chemicals. But also inevitably there is this anthropomorphisation in order that we can even start to conceptualize it. So Mm -hmm. that's something that's always present. And just briefly this, I think the animal studies, there's a really interesting strand, I mentioned it really early on, about this sort of Turing test um, kind of behavioral stuff. And I'd be interested to hear what. Jennifer thinks of that where, you know, as I said with, um, you know, Nim Chimpsky, that animals are kind of assessed in relation to how they can adopt human traits. And this Turing question of how much like a human you can be or Alex the parrot, you know, who, Mm -hmm. and again, that sort of question of, um, and that's, again, a bit like cetaceans sort of saying, well, humans, you know, can't really communicate because they can't communicate through sonar. You know, there's a sort Mm of, um, you know, a failure to adapt again, to the notion of a completely different consciousness, I think, possibly. Although I'm sure lots of really interesting conclusions have been drawn and, you know, possibilities through those
3: experiments as well. I mean, just a quick one for for Jennifer. I mean, I am a rotten old killjoy, as you can see. It just seems to me uh, that, for example, the example you've given is one, as it were, cultural thing, particular use of tools. and, uh, And it is very impressive. And the fact that it is taught and it is inherited. But what's missing is the general principle behind the tools, the sense of a general principle, which means that that tool use isn't generalized to other kinds of tools, and that there is no really spectacular growth of technologies in, in, in those species. It's just like, I mean, the beautiful work with you can probably understand better than I do, that Nicola Clayton has done on scrub jays, which is, as it were, their ability to have a sense of the future. And that scene, looking at their caching behavior, hiding acorns or whatever it is. And one says, yes, I suppose there is some kind of implicit sense of the future in what they do. But it doesn't generalize to that shared calendrical diary future, a post-tense time, if you like, which is what we live in all the time. In other words, you have these one-off, as it were, technologies. The principle isn't discovered. The principle isn't debated. And that's why they remain one-off technologies, even though they may evolve just a little bit. But there you are, it's the killjoy speaking again.
0: Jennifer, yeah. any response to the killjoy?
4: Well, I would just say again, you know, we're 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 measuring by our own yardsticks. We don't seem yeah. capable of measuring by any other. And I'm just um, I'm not convinced that just because we don't have the Rosetta Stone for the languages or the of the capabilities of other creatures that they don't exist. I mean, why should we assume that there's less going on rather than more? It's not that we're assuming they have human-like behaviors. It's that we're very curious about what the nature of the behavior is, and is it possibly more complex than we thought? It's very simple, Um, yeah.
0: Well, I'm afraid that's all we've got time for, and it's been a riveting conversation. So thank you uh, to all of the panelists. And uh, that’s all for us here today. Thank you very much for attending.
1: Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Philosophy for Our Times. If you enjoyed today's episode, don’t forget to like and subscribe on your platform of choice and visit iI.tv for hundreds more podcasts, videos, and articles from the world's leading thinkers.